Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Beginning at verse number 4, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, as to me, Jeremiah, and God said to me, Behold, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Verse 17. Now, gird up your loins. That's a phrase used in Scripture to refer to the act of the Hebrews who wore long flowing robes who would have to use a belt to gird up their loins so the robe would not get in the way of free, easy movement. It was a sign of getting ready for action. Jeremiah, on the basis of what I've said, now, gird up your loins and arise. And speak to them all which I commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. And the word there is to be brought low by fear. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, and as a pillar of iron, and as walls of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, to the people of the land, and they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Once again, ask God to bless. Father, my heart's desire is to communicate your word in such a way that lives are changed. Nothing else is worth any of our time. Work to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About a month ago, I decided to exercise my carpentry skills, which are not known as considerable, and I built a bird bath. Fairly easy project, wouldn't you think? I took one of these hard, rubber-like plastic bases about that wide in diameter that you put under a planting pot to catch the drippings, you know? Do you know? Okay. And I figured that would make a rather attractive bird bath. And I took a four-by-four piece of lumber and I dug a narrow hole and set the four-by-four piece of lumber into the ground and attached the base, this plastic-type material base, to the top of this piece of wood. And then I filled it with water and went to sit on my patio to watch the flocks of birds come and bathe in my bird bath. And as I was sitting there enjoying the wonders of my craftsmanship, I noticed that as I looked at the bird bath, running down the pole was a trickle of water. Now that told me something is not as it should be. And I immediately went to that bird bath and studied the bird bath to determine what the problem might be. By the time I got there, the bird bath was empty of water. And it was then I discovered that the way to attach a rubber plastic type base to a pole is not with a large nail. (laughs) 
plastic had cracked and the water was trickling down through. A lot of us have lives, a little bit like that. We try to put them together. We come to church, we hear principles, we hear how we're supposed to respond to our husbands, to our wives, to our children, how we're supposed to do this and do that. And we try to put our lives together, but somehow what's supposed to be there seems to trickle out. We can't quite find the error that we made. It wasn't as obvious as the error of a nail. And we're wondering what's missing. Just this past week, a man told me that I know so much about truth. I understand who Jesus is, that he's God, that he came in the flesh to die for sinful man. And I place my trust in him as my Lord and Savior. I know I'm going to heaven. I know someday I'll be with him forever. And in the meantime, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to live for him and glorify him and enjoy him forever and study his word, be in fellowship and give and pray. I know all that. Why is it not down deep inside of me? Something's missing. Something's trickling out. But I can't find the nail hole. I don't know why my life isn't together the way it should be. Last week, I talked about this a little bit, the first of our two-part series on the subject of character. And I suggested that many of us perhaps feel this way, that something is not quite as it should be. And I suggested two ways that we should not go about trying to fill up the gap, fill up the void. Last week I suggested that what is not missing, and therefore what we should not focus our attention on to correct what's missing, is a preoccupation with doing everything that a Christian should do. Now, do I think that we should follow Christ's teachings? Do I think we should be in church and should read and should pray? Of course I do. The Bible says that we should do it. But what I want to suggest to you is that if we focus, and last week I developed this, if we focus our attention on doing, 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 that which we're supposed to do, Either we'll get frustrated because there's always more, or we'll have a false sense of having arrived. The second thing I suggested last week that is not the problem, as we try to correct that problem where things are trickling out of our birdbath and our lives are not very full, the problem is not just to put more water in the birdbath, it'll trickle out too. And I suggested by parallel last week that Some of us sense that what might be missing is a deep sense of exuberance about life. Hey, tomorrow's coming. Aren't you excited? Most of us say no. But we should be, shouldn't we? Jeremiah wasn't. There was no great warm glow of positive swelling up feelings as he faced imprisonment, torture, being in stocks, ridicule, and eventual death. Jeremiah didn't have the warm glow. What's missing? It's not what we do. Not what we feel, what's missing. Last week we studied Jeremiah's life and concluded that the core character that would seem to undergird all of Jeremiah's life and got him through is something which perhaps is missing in many of our lives. And that core character is this. Jeremiah, when he contemplated giving up the ministry, he said that his bones burned within him. Just the prospect of going away from that which he knew was true was so painful a prospect that he couldn't do it. He was controlled by what he knew to be true. Jeremiah was so completely consumed by truth that he was controlled by it. And I defined last week character as meaning controlled by truth. And I suggested that if we'd like to get our lives in shape and correct the trickling out problem, that perhaps we need to focus our attention on asking ourselves down deep, what controls us? And the man of character, the woman of character, is the person who responds, what controls me 
is truth. I know what's true and I'm living in the light of that. That's what I'm doing. Come what may, no matter what the problems are, I know truth and its truth has gripped me at the very core of my being and I'm living a life that's irresistibly controlled by that which I know to be true. And I trust, as you listened last week, that there were at least some who were saying, I'd like that. I'd like to be controlled by truth. Tell me how. Last week we discussed character, what it is today, character, and how it's developed. How can we come to the point where we're controlled by truth in all that we do? I want to organize my thinking today under two headings. One, if we're not controlled by truth, what does control us? If we're not controlled by truth, then what controls us? In the second heading, how can we shift from whatever controls us and become controlled by truth? Heading number one. If we're not controlled by truth, then what does control us? Did you ever um, wonder about yourself? That's a broad statement, eh? Have you ever noticed that you seem to be driven in certain directions, you get very excited and you have plenty of motivation to do this and not to do that? Do you ever wonder why? Do you ever wonder why sometimes a little comment really gets to you and bothers you and upsets you and something which seems to be far worse just runs off your water, runs off your back like water off a duck's back? Do you ever wonder why? Do you ever wonder why when your mind is blank that it goes in certain directions? Your fantasy life. Do you ever wonder why that appeals to you, not that? You ever dream? I'm not much on dream analysis, but I want to tell you about a dream that I've had recurrently for about 20 or 25 years. I've dreamt it probably 15, 20 times in that many years. When you hear this dream, you'll know why I've gone into my profession. <laughs> when I was in high school, or junior high school, I guess, in eighth grade, I think, the dream first occurred. <clears throat> I dreamt that I walked into a math class as an eighth grade student, sat down to endure another hour of confusion, and the teacher announced as we took our seats, students, put your books away, get your pencils out, and the exam will begin in a few moments. And I panicked. I looked around. The rest of the students were calmly making preparations for the exam, and I was the only student in the entire class who did not know the exam was that day and I hadn't prepared. And I've woken up in a cold sweat as a youngster with that dream. And I went to college and graduate school. And that dream recurred once or twice a year. After I finished my graduate training, I can recall on several occasions, one in particular stands out, after I was finished with school, I was out of school. When I woke up one night in a sweat saying, where's my textbook? I've got a test tomorrow. And I got up to find my textbook and had to say, no, wait a minute, I've already finished school. I'm not in class anymore. Then I began to preach. First sermon I ever preached was in a small church in Indianapolis. And I had just heard the words, just read the words that John Calvin wrote somewhere, where he said this, while it's true we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. I thought that was kind of pithy. Have you heard that word, pithy? I thought it was kind of neat. 
It's true we're saved by faith alone. We get to heaven not by our good works, but by faith in what Jesus did. But the faith that does save us, when we exercise faith in him, it does issue forth in good works. Faith in that works is dead. And that phrase summarized the teaching, it seems to me, reconciling Paul and James rather well, I thought. And as I was preaching to this small church in Indianapolis, my first sermon ever on a Sunday morning, I said to these folks, I said, this past week I came across a phrase which has so indelibly burned itself into my mind that I will never forget it. It means so much to me that as long as I live, this phrase will be in the tip of my tongue. My mind went blank. (laughs) And I couldn't think of that phrase. And I look down at my notes, and when I preach, I have lots of pieces of paper all over the place. And I looked down to find that phrase, but I was on the wrong page. And I began shuffling through my notes, and I couldn't find it. And they're looking around, they're waiting. And I finally rose and said, I forgot it. (laughs) Since then, I've had a dream. A few times. I've dreamt that I have come to a church where I was scheduled to preach. And as I was sitting on the platform waiting to preach, it occurred to me that I hadn't prepared and I didn't have a sermon. Those are my dreams. Those of you who think I'm a little strange, I wish you'd all get up and share yours because they're equally bizarre. (laughs) What one emotion do you hear running through all those dreams? What one emotion do you hear is represented in those perhaps silly dreams, an emotion that maybe is lurking down deep in the core of my being that is having its effect on my personality. What's the emotion? Say it. Fear, absolutely. Fear of what? Failure. Being in a situation where I'm not adequate. Being vulnerable. Being exposed. Because down deep I wonder if I can pull it off. And if I can fake it, then it's okay. I want to suggest to you this morning that most of our behavior is controlled by one of two great motivations. Way down deep in the core of our personalities, one of two great motivations tends to control much, perhaps most, of what we do. Those two motivations are truth or fear. If I am not controlled by truth, I'm controlled by fear. Fear. Much of what I do is controlled by fear. Let's examine that. Look at Jeremiah chapter 41, would you? And let me tell you the story while you're turning. At this point in the narrative, Jeremiah's ministry... Zedekiah, king of Judah, had been captured, had been killed, and the Jews had been taken captive back to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the southern kingdom where Jeremiah primarily ministered, where he ministered, had been captured by Babylon. And all the Jews, except for just a handful of very poor Jews, had been taken away to Babylon. There were a small group, there was a small group, a small remnant, that Nebuchadnezzar permitted to remain behind in the land of Judah. The rest were all deported to Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar left to go back to his country, he appointed a man named Gedaliah 
to be his puppet king, if you will, to be his substitute ruler over this handful of Jews that were left in Judah. And he was to represent Nebuchadnezzar in leading these Jews and governing over this small group of Jews. A renegade named Ishmael, follow the story, a renegade named Ishmael decided for whatever reason that perhaps he wanted to take over this small group of Jews. He wanted to be king for a day, and so he killed Gedaliah. He assassinated the man that Nebuchadnezzar, the real power, had chosen. <clears throat> he killed him. When the Jews realized that, they drove Ishmael out into hiding. Gedaliah was dead. The assassin was, had fled. The Jews were scared. They were scared. They were saying, when Nebuchadnezzar finds out what we've done to his appointed king, will he come down with his armies and so simply, because he has the power, we're just very few, small, poor Jews, will he destroy us? They were afraid. Look at Jeremiah 41. How did the Jews handle their fear? Look at verse 17. <clears throat> and they, the small remnant of Jews, they went and stayed in Gareth Chimham, which is beside Bethlehem, in order to proceed into Egypt, catch that, in order to go into Egypt because of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, but they were afraid of them, since Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Now, do you hear what's happening? They're scared, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy them, and they're thinking in their minds that perhaps the way to handle our fear is to run off to Egypt... Here we are in Judah, here's the Babylon, ready to come down and kill us. When they find out what happened to Gedaliah, we'll flee south, we'll run on to Egypt, and maybe Nebuchadnezzar won't follow us there, and we'll be safe. They were scared. They came to Jeremiah and said, what shall we do? Look at chapter 42. Look at verse 2. They said to Jeremiah, the prophet, please let our petition come before you and pray for us, the Lord your God, and that is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes now see us, that the Lord your God, pray Jeremiah, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Verse 5, then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send you to us, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God. We want to be controlled by truth. That's what they're saying. We will listen to the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we are sending you, in order that it may go well with us, because we're scared when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Now the question is, what controlled these Jews? What was primarily in their mind? Above all else, come what may, God, what you say goes. Or were they saying, we're scared to death, God, tell us how to get out, and if it makes sense, we'll do it. Which were they saying? And the evidence confirms it as you read the rest of the narrative, that when Jeremiah came back and said to the Jews, God's message for you is stick around. You stay here in the land of Judah, and I'll protect you. I'll be your, refu your refuge. You go to Egypt, and I'll see to it you're destroyed. My word says, stay. My fears say, go. What do they do? They went. What are they controlled by? Fear. Not the word of God. But fear. It seems to be a principle running through the scripture that says this. That whoever or whatever we fear, whomever I guess is proper grammar, whomever or whatever we fear becomes our Lord. Our lives revolve around our fear. Did you ever think of it that way? 
Our lives revolve around our fears. Our motivation is so often in what we do to avoid failure, to avoid poverty, to avoid rejection, to avoid looking foolish, to avoid making the wrong decision. And so we study hard, pray hard, work hard, do all sorts of things hard in the effort to avoid that which we're afraid of, we're running from. And much of what we do, including our prayer life, our devotional life, our church life, our giving life, is running away from a fear. Much of what we do is designed to avoid what we fear. The question is, what do we fear? I used to be a stutterer. I've told that before to many audiences, perhaps this one. I used to stutter rather badly. Every stutterer has his letters that he cannot say, or at least has trouble saying. My two letters were L and P. My name is Larry, and I went to Plymouth White Marsh High School. Loved to preach on Leviticus, but couldn't do it because I couldn't say it. I was afraid to speak in a group. I was afraid to talk publicly because I might stutter. What am I afraid of? God? The Lord says, fear me. You're not my problem, God. These people out here, they're my problem. If I stutter, they might go, something like that, and I'll be embarrassed. They might feel sorry for me. I don't want sympathy. I'm a big guy. I don't want their reaction. I'm afraid of that. And I used to, when I would come to a Bible study, I would go late. I'd arrive 10, 15 minutes late reliably. People thought I wasn't prompt. I was prompt right on time by my schedule. I don't want to be called on to open a prayer. Mike Stutter. When it was time for the refreshments to be served, I reliably would excuse myself to go to the restroom. I don't want to be called on to ask the blessing on the food. When I was in eighth grade, I was president of my junior high school class. We had a meeting every Monday morning. I was sick ten Monday mornings in a row with a stomachache that I made up. I don't want to go talk in front of my classmates. That was my desire, to be controlled by the truth of my responsibilities, to be a good president for my students. Now I was controlled by fear. You see, fear runs so much of our lives. What's the fear? As you've listened to me share myself a little bit, Maybe you're thinking about yourself a trust. And is it ringing a responsive note that down deep there's a fear of inadequacy? A fear of not performing acceptably? A fear of something happening that I can't handle? And yet I'm a finite being, and that which matters to me most I can't control. What matters to me most I can't control. So I'm scared down deep. I'm not sure if I can handle that which I'm called upon to handle whether it's the monthly payments or impressing my friends or uh, my family life or my spiritual life or whatever it might be, that which matters to me most, I can't seem to make it happen. I can't control it. And so I live in constant, way down deep fear. And my fears run me much of the time. The Jews went to Egypt, mastered not by God, but mastered by their fear. As I'm talking about fear, perhaps some of you are saying, I'm not afraid. I'm tough. Afraid of a few things maybe, little trivial things, but this deep lurking fear you're talking about, it's not my experience. I hope the person next to me is listening. I guess it's theirs, but it's not mine. What I want to suggest to you that the lack of awareness of fear, there's no evidence that fear isn't running your life. Look at Jeremiah 44. These Jews that Jeremiah told to stay in the land, Jeremiah said, stick around because if you leave, if you go to Egypt, you're going to be destroyed. You stay in Jerusalem, stay in Judah, my, our God will protect you. 
These Jews, out of fear, not of God, but fear of Nebuchadnezzar, fled to Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, listen to what they did. In Jeremiah 44, and look at verse 16. As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven, a pagan deity of that time, and pouring out libations to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. Scared of lack of food, not being well off, a lot of misfortune. But hey, we can cope with that. We'll just worship the false god. And if I had been there at that time and walked up to them and said, Are you afraid? What do you suppose they might have said? Some might have said, No. Our coping mechanisms are working well. We've put distance between us and what we fear. We have evolved strategies for reducing the risk that we face. And now as we trust in our own coping mechanisms, we don't feel particularly afraid. Why were they not feeling that fear? Because fear was not at the core of their personality? That's not why, because fear was at the core. They did not feel the fear because they had covered it over with their own coping mechanisms. Do we do that? We develop investment programs. We follow an elaborate vitamin regime. Socialize with non-threatening people. We say our daily prayers, and we feel secure. I'm not afraid. Look at my bank book. Look at my diet. Look at my friends. Look at my spiritual life. I'm all right. But ask yourself, why do we do these things? Is it because we fear inflation, sickness, rejection, and lack of God's blessing? Anything wrong with careful financial planning or good dietary habits? Of course not. I'm not arguing against that. Nothing's wrong with that unless the primary motivation for what I do is fear of anything other than God. How much of my life is controlled by fear? I want to suggest, I think it's true, it's my observation, that most people today who say they don't have fear, that a good majority of those of us who sometimes say, I'm not afraid, it's not because we're not afraid, it's because we're not in touch with our fear, because we've covered it over with all sorts of coping mechanisms, and the coping mechanisms themselves are the result of what? Response to God's commands? No. Fear. What are we controlled by? Fear. Either we feel the fear because we've seen a way of avoiding what we fear, or we don't feel the fear because we've anesthetized our anxieties by our coping strategies. Either way, we're controlled by fear. And if what I think is true, we're in a deplorable condition, me, you, because whatever we fear becomes our Lord. Whatever we fear becomes the focus, point of our lives around which we revolve all of our decisions and our choices. We're told to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God says, do you want to fear? I'm the one to fear because I'm the one who can destroy the soul. Don't fear those, Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can destroy just the body. Fear those. Fear that one who can destroy the soul. That's me. You want to be afraid? I'm the one to be afraid of because I have the power of life and death. Who do you want to fear? And I say, Lord, I guess it's you. And he says, right, good news, you come to me, see my love, and my perfect love will cast out fear. 
You'll fear being outside of my will because you'll see emptiness there and you'll fear that knowing that apart from God life is one big zero and Lord I fear that but I'm drawn by your irresistible love. I know what's true. I know what life is all about. I know where I'm going. I know who you are and I'm controlled by truth as opposed to fear. That's the way it's supposed to be but that isn't the way it is. So many of us, I know all that truth and so do you. At least a whole bunch of it. But I still find myself being controlled by fear. How do we change? That's the second heading. First heading is not controlled by truth, but controls us. Fear. Second heading, how do we shift from being controlled by fear to being controlled by truth? Look at our text in Jeremiah chapter 1. Notice verse 8. God says to Jeremiah, don't be afraid. Out of context, what a remarkably unhelpful bit of advice that is. Do you feel afraid of something and someone says, don't be afraid? Super, tell me how. I'm aware that down deep in the core of my being there's fear. Here's Jeremiah, a young priest. Raised in an apparently godly family, his father, some think, Hilkiah, was the man who found the book of the law in Josiah's day. Apparently a godly man. His other relatives seemed to be godly people. Jeremiah was raised, in our terminology, in a good, solid Christian home. Hadn't been exposed to some of the awfulness outside, maybe, quite as strongly as he was about to be. And God said, Jeremiah, you're a young fellow. You've been sheltered. Go out and preach to a godless nation to an apostate nation, my people who have fled from me. Preach to them. They're going to hate you. I've set you over them. You preach. And Jeremiah said, me? you got to be kidding. That's what he said. Lord, alas, I'm a youth. I don't know how to speak. God, you picked the wrong one. I'm afraid. Jeremiah felt fear. Alas, Lord, he said in verse 6, I don't know how to speak. I'm a youth. Jeremiah was afraid that he was inadequate for the job. The Bible tells me, cast all your care on him, be anxious for nothing. And I read those words glibly. Here's the truth of God, here's my fear, how to get them together. God, you say not to be afraid, but I am. What do I do? Where's my button to push? Where's the formula to recite? Where's the creed to perform? Where's the ritual to enact? How do I change, Lord? Because down deep, I'm controlled by fear too much of the time. Just read through the book of Jeremiah. You come to realize that Jeremiah made the shift from being controlled by fear to truth? How? How? I want to suggest to you that when God looked at Jeremiah he saw a man who was afraid. Jeremiah recognized you're afraid. <clears throat> God's a realist. He said, I know you're afraid. Don't be. Here's why. And then he presented truth to Jeremiah that he wanted Jeremiah to be controlled by and then once he provided this truth he put Jeremiah in a position where the truth began to control him. Let's see how it works. First of all, I want you to notice the truth that Jeremiah presented, that Jeremiah was presented by God. Three things very briefly. First of all, Jeremiah was told by God, before you were formed, I knew you. I knew you. I formed you. I consecrated you. I appointed you. I'm with you. The first truth that God communicated to Jeremiah was, Jeremiah, you're the man for the job. Do you ever feel like what God has called you to, to minister to that husband, to endure that loneliness of being single, to raise that obstreperous youngster, to face the financial problems that you've got, 
Lord, you've called me to something that's not right. God says, no, you're the man for the job. I picked you for it. I know what I'm doing. God is in the habit of picking the unlikeliest people to do his work. Remember the story of Gideon? The time of the judges. The Midianites were oppressing the land and poor Gideon was hiding out. He was the youngest and the least of all families. He was hiding out from the Midianites, afraid that they'd catch him and take away what he was making. And God came to him and said, Hail, valiant warrior. Gideon said, Who, me? You've got to be kidding. You want me to lead the revolt against the Midianites? God said, Sure. Luke chapter 3. Look at it sometime, not now. The word of God we read passed over. It's very striking. The word of God came to John the Baptist, but the context there is that the word of God passed over an emperor, a governor, three tetrarchs, and two high priests and came to some wild savage in the wilderness and said, You're my man. God picks the unlikeliest people to do his thing. About 20 years ago, he picked an aggressive, assertive, materialistic, upward mobile salesman and said, I want you to be a shepherd of God's people, and Dave Nicholas responded to the call. Came to me, a stutterer, afraid of people, said, publicly teach my word. I said, you're kidding. I can't even talk. God picks the unlikeliest people. Do you feel like that? The first element of truth is, I chose you. I don't make any mistakes. Second element of truth, and it's contained in the visions in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. We won't take time to discuss them in detail. But Jeremiah had two visions of an almond tree and a vision of a boiling pot. Study it on your own and you'll see that the lesson that God is communicating is this. Jeremiah, the word that I send through you will accomplish its purposes. I'm watching over my word. It's going to happen the way I've planned it. Jeremiah, that boiling pot that's going to pour down on top of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, I'm in charge of that. Those nations that are fighting, I'm going to pick which one's going to come and destroy Judah. It's all part of my plan. Truth number two, I'm in charge of all that happens in your life, Jeremiah. Truth number three in the last phrase of verse 17. Don't be dismayed before them lest I dismay you before them. The third truth is this. Jeremiah, I have the power to bring you to absolute failure. Do you want to fear somebody? Fear me. That's what he said. Now with these three truths laid out before Jeremiah, Jeremiah's mind, here he is, this young priest, a sheltered background going over to be above this nation and to proclaim the judgment of God on them. Jeremiah's scared, and God says, I didn't make a mistake when I chose you. I'm in charge of all that happens, and if you want to be afraid of somebody, fear me, because I'm the one that can bring you lower, put you high. Well, God, I'm still afraid. There's the truth. But how do I get the fear out of me and the truth in me? How does it work? And the answer to that is contained in chapter 2 and verse number 2 in the first word of the sentence. Go. Jeremiah. Life is full of choices. And I want you to live your life in such a way, proclaim my word, do what I say, live your life in such a way that if what God says is not true, then you will be destroyed. Let me illustrate my point, then it will stop. Some time ago I spoke with a woman who was afraid of her husband. He had hurt her rather badly earlier in their marriage, really badly. She was very hurt. Deep inside was pain of rejection. Her background was very sad and unhappy, much rejection. She didn't want to be hurt anymore. What do you suppose is the core of her being? Fear of more pain. Well, I don't want to be hurt. I've had enough, thanks. 
She was trying to be a good wife. She's a Christian. Doing all that she knew a Christian wife ought to do. And she was doing very well. But she came to me saying, I'm doing what the seminars and the books and as far as I know the Bible, I'm doing what it says, but something's missing. Our communication is good, but not right. Our relationship is intimate, but not quite. Our physical relationship is satisfying, but something's not what it should be there either. I don't know what's wrong. A bird bath is leaking, and I can't find the problem. I asked her to imagine this. I said, suppose I took a very thick, big, sturdy-looking rope, a real big one, and I held it in front of you. And I said to you, could this rope support your weight? What would you say? She would say, well, rope is as big as you describe. I'd say, well, sure. I'm not a very big woman. That rope could hold a car, let alone me. Then I said, well, suppose that I took you to a high cliff overlooking a deep, dark abyss, and I told you to swing out over the abyss, supported only by the rope. What would you say? She said, I think I'd check the rope again. Make sure it really is what it looked to be. I then suggested to her this. I said that she was standing on the cliff and that the dark chasm which she was leaning over looking at, desperately afraid of falling into, was the chasm of being utterly destroyed by her husband's rejection. And she didn't want to risk it. And so emotionally, in so many subtle ways, she kept her distance from her husband. Little comments, little distancing, they all have our maneuvers. In so many ways, she just wouldn't give herself all the way. Why? If she fell off the cliff and gave herself totally to her husband and he rejected her, it would totally destroy the woman. That's how she felt. You sit in the chair ten times and it falls down and I say, sit in the 11th time, how do you feel? A little bit leery. I've given myself to my father and my mother and my brothers and my first husband, now this one. They've all let me down and you say, give myself again? I'm going to be destroyed. I said, yep, that's the abyss. That's the dark abyss that you fear. She said, yes. And I said, the rope that I described is your relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, I'm with you. I'll never forsake you. I'll keep you from falling all the way. My arms are there. When man destroys you, I'll renew you. I love you. Jump. She had to make a decision. She began to cry in my office. She sobbed. And I was glad for that because it told me that unlike so many of us, she was in touch with her fear. She was in touch with her fear. She made her decision. She said, yes, if what God says is true, I want to jump and swing on the rope. She committed herself to doing that and she went home. The story since then has been a story of an increasing sense of her wholeness in Christ. The principle is this. Only in midair, suspended over the chasm of whatever we fear the most, suspended only by the promises of God, will the truth of God become a burning reality which at the deepest level of our being will control us. We're so often like Peter in the boat. Lord, I believe I can walk on water, but I won't leave the boat. Something missing in your life. Do you sense that as I do in mine? Lord, what's missing? Lord, I have so much of it together in so many ways. You've blessed me so abundantly. A good background, Christian parents, a good family, Christian wife and two kids. 
Lord, you've given me reasonable health. You've given me a ministry. You've given me so much, Lord. Everything should be just perfect. And inside, I'm not quite there. What's missing? Well, i got to do more. No. Well, i got to feel more. No. Well, i got to be controlled by truth. Yes, but I'm controlled by fear. How do I change? Step one is do you have a relationship with the rope. There's a rope around your waist. Do you know Jesus is your Savior? Do you know that he's God? That he came and he died because I'm a sinner, because you're a sinner. And he took the full punishment that my sins deserve when he hung on the cross. Do you have a relationship with him and you put your faith in him as Savior? If you haven't, then I'm not speaking to you because you won't be able to jump off the cliff. You have the rope to hang on to. You'll think you'll be destroyed. But if you're a Christian, and I trust most of you are, and if you're not, become one. You can just by praying, Lord, I receive you as my Savior. I trust in you to pay the price of my sins. But if you're a Christian, then I urge you to do this. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a successive thing over a period of time, I believe. Ask the Spirit of God to alert you to the fears that are within you so that you can recognize what you're doing that's controlled by fear, whether it's your frantic business activities, whether it's your neglecting your family, whether it's you're working so hard with your family, whether it's this, whether it's that, or you're running away from a fear and you say, Lord, right now I'm controlled by fear. I don't want to be. What's the truth, God, that you've chosen me to live for you? You didn't make a mistake when you picked this weakling. Thank you for your grace. Lord, you're in charge of all that happens if my husband rejects me or my kids get sick. Lord, you're in charge of all of that. I believe that. And Lord, I know that the only one who's worth fearing is you because nobody else can hurt me like you can. But nobody else can bless me like you can and that's what you want to do with my life. And Lord, for that reason, I'll jump by the rope. When you face the fear, face it fullness. Let yourself sob if the Spirit of God brings you to it. And then live your lives in such a way that if God doesn't come through, you'll be utterly devastated. Only then will any of us know what it means to be men and women of character, people who are controlled by the truth of God. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.